Before that, let me tell you about my frequent trips to Hull when I was a kid, which sounds terrible. Who would frequently go to Hull? My mum had lots of family in Hull, and so when I was young, we would drive up and down all the time. And I always, when I was really young, used to wonder, why is the journey there feel so much longer than the journey home? On the way there, I would constantly be shouting, Mom, please, are we almost there? Come on, come on. And she'd be shouting back. And it, but on the way home, it felt like, oh, I recognize that. I recognize that. We're almost home. We're almost home. I over and over would recognize the welcome to Scotland sign. My dad would roll down the window for a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Gretna services for the toilet. Finally hitting Glasgow. We're an hour from home. There were signs that we were on the final stretch of our journey. But the, the journey to Hull felt endless. I never knew where we were. I never recognized anything. On the way home, there were signs. Well, in the kind of long journey of John's gospel, Jesus keeps trying to reassure us that he's going somewhere. That, that we've not just been meandering along, enjoying the scenery. It's not that Jesus has just become incarnate for a few years just to gently encourage humans before he withdraws. He has a destination. But on his journey towards what he has called his hour, he keeps shouting back to the back seat, guys, we're not there yet. My hour has not come. When Mary asked him to save the wedding in chapter 2, he said, Woman, my hour has not come. He went privately to the Feast of Booths in John 7. He said, My time has not come. And then just after that, when the uh, rulers tried to arrest him, John adds a little footnote and he says, They were unsuccessful because, quote, his hour had not come. Time and time again, Jesus is just calling to the back seat and saying, We're not there yet. Finally, in John 12, Jesus seems to catch sight of a landmark or a road sign that tells him he's on the final stretch of his journey. Verse 23, he finally says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we, we might wonder if Jesus is just being God, supernaturally aware that he now has a week to go. He looked at his calendar that morning and thought, the time seems right. The hour has come. Or maybe with all of the kind of fervor around him, he's just starting to get worried and thinks, it seems like the time is coming. And so that it seems like he's in control, he announces his hour has come. But John doesn't give us any of those options. He actually spells out the true trigger of Jesus' hour for us. Last week, we ended in verse 19 with the Pharisees' desperate observation. If you just look at verse 19, you'll see it. They say, look, the whole world has gone after him. And it's sometimes helpful to read the Bible without headings. The headings in our Bibles weren't there when it was written. And so if you just remove the line between verse 19 and verse 20, you'll see a very clear connection. The Pharisees complain, the whole world has gone after him. And then in verse 20, you'll see a connection. The whole world has gone after him. And now some Greeks were among those who went up to the festival. And they asked to see Jesus. So here's the only thing that's changed. Here's what Jesus sees on his journey towards his hour and realizes the time has come. Nothing has changed but this. The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified because now the whole world is going after him. The Jewish people have in large part turned against him. The rulers are now hell-bent on crucifying him. The crowds aren't that interested, but the whole world, including Gentiles, are now going after him. 
And that's the trigger that shows him his hour has come. Just let me spell that out for you in terms that might kind of ground it for us this morning. It was the coming to Jesus of people like you and me, non-Jewish, far off, ignorant of the things of God, people like us coming to him that finally compelled him to the cross. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. He says, Jesus went to the cross, quote, for the joy that was set before him. These Greek men that come to Jesus are that joy. You and I are the joy that drove Jesus to Calvary's cross. We've entered the final stretch. There's the border sign. There's Gretna Green. There's the M8. Jesus looks up and there they are, the people he came to die for. And he just shouts out in a kind of heart-bursting readiness, the hour has come. I'm ready to die. There they are. The whole world is coming in. But we can only grasp how shocking that is if we just slow down and look at what he suddenly realizes. Because Jesus, in the same breath as he shouts with readiness, suddenly is confronted with an agony about what is to come. Even as he looks at the joy that was set before him, looks at them in the eyes, and he makes a kind of public statement of intent to die, it's like his heart just sinks at the prospect. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All of Jesus' life has been leading up to this moment. So every miracle, every moment of hiding from the crowds, every sermon, every midnight conversation with his disciples has come to this. Jesus has finally reached his moment and he is utterly terrified. <coughs> we just like to swap aside his humanity and think he just didn't really think about what was to come. Jesus is terrified and here's the kind of grotesque thought that suddenly pops into his mind. He's come all this way. <coughs> Should I just leave it? They're going to crucify me anyway. They're not worth it. Are they? Do I really have to be pinned up, naked, humiliated, and spat on? Do I really have to stare down both barrels of the wrath of God and bear the full weight of human sin? Do I really have to, for the first time in my eternal, joyful existence, know what it feels like to be alone in the universe? Do I really have to? Father, save me from this hour. The Gospel of Luke recounts that Jesus, as he kind of considered what was to come, started to sweat drops of blood onto the ground. <coughs> agony. Complete agony. But look how quickly he overcomes the temptation. The words are barely even out of his mouth before he rebukes himself. No! This is why I came. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is resolute. You and I can't even begin to imagine what he is staring down. Because he gets the fullness of it. He has seen it. He is staring down the deepest agony that a human being could possibly endure. He is staring into hell itself, open before him, ready to swallow him up. 
Death has opened its jaws. And Jesus, horrified and sweating and scared, is willing to go for it. He's willing to jump in. And here's why. He spells it out for us. It's kind of him. And it is quite simply the ground floor of your only hope in life. You have nothing but this. And we'll see just in a minute that it's also the ground floor of our calling as Christians. But Jesus just lets the crowds know in verse 24. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Why is Jesus in this moment of agony, staring into the wrath of God, staring into hell? Why is he willing to endure? Why is he willing to take the next step? Well, the reason is he saw what was on the other side. He sees a harvest of new life that can only be produced if he dies. If only he will put himself into the ground to die, he knows that the world with him can come back to life. He is the only righteous one, the only one who has pleased the Father. He's the only one who has the very life of God in him. And so just to stretch his metaphor further, he's the only seed left in this packet. If he doesn't go into the ground to die, there is no one else. If he doesn't die, if Jesus doesn't in this moment resist the temptation that you would have caved to, if he doesn't embrace his hour, then you and I will be today left in our sin, broken and lost and destined for eternal death. That's the stakes of this moment. But Jesus knows if he will just die, if one man will die planting in his death a seed of gospel power, then everything will change. Just take a second and look how much he loves you. Look how far he's willing to go in obedience to his father just to bring you home to God. Look what temptation he faces. Look what agony he endures. Not because he has a sense of duty. Well, I've come this far. He could have gone home. No, he, he did it for you. The joy that was set before him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But here's where Jesus turns the tables on us and his words become challenging and life-changing if we will let them. He turns the attention on us and he really just begins to tease out, what does all this mean for the crowds? What does it mean for us. Well, here's two things in the rest of our time together. First is the call of the cross to those who would follow Jesus. And second, the warning of the cross to those who would refuse. Let's look again at what Jesus says about his death in verse 24. He says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And then look down just briefly at verse 42. Context clue as to why Jesus might say this. Verse 42, John says, Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Let me sum up the call of the cross in a sentence, and then we'll explore. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. If we want the benefits of the cross, we must enter into a life that's shaped like the cross. If we want the benefits of the cross, we must enter into a life that is shaped like the cross. We can unpack that a bit with the help of a German theologian who was executed by the Nazis in 1940, Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while everyone else around him is caving into the pressure of the Nazi party and kind of becoming this German state church that promotes their politics, he stood firm. And he stood firm because he saw that the call of Christ meant that he would have to lose political power and social standing and eventually his life. And he knew that because he understood what Jesus says in John 12. Here's how he understood it in his own words. I should allow this to sit with you for a second. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Come and die. That's the call of the cross. You and I need to take seriously this morning that the reality is this. To follow Jesus is not just to follow him wherever he goes. It's to follow him into his death. That's what he means in verse 26. He means that we we must, we have to, if we come to him, leave behind our own ambition. Leave behind our self-preservation tactics. Stop living for our own good. And here's his brutal words. Hate our own life rather than loving it. Let me be clear, not to caveat him, but let me be clear. The idea of hating something in a kind of Hebrew idiom. It it can mean kind of valuing something as nothing compared to other things. So just briefly, if you struggle with self-hatred, please hear me, be assured that Jesus is not trying to deepen your pain. He doesn't want you to look in the mirror and hate what you see. That's not his heart for you. He does want to release you from a kind of self-hatred that actually comes because you love your life too much. Godly, Christ-like hatred of your own life, as he calls it, releases you from self-hatred because your life comes into its proper perspective. So that just hear the heart of Jesus for you, that he doesn't want to deepen your pain in self-hatred. So that's a caveat, but let's not soften his words. He still means that how much we value our own life Our own ambitions, our own desires, our own plans should be at the bottom of the pile compared to the good of our neighbor and the glory of God. That's the call of the Christian life. Here's what Jesus is saying, what Bonhoeffer understood, what Jesus' first listeners probably could not get their heads around. Following Jesus costs us something. It means living our lives with our intentions and aims fixed on the kingdom of God not on our own kingdoms, not on our own desires. 
This just might be the hardest thing he had to say for us today. You and I have been weaned from birth on a steady diet of Disney and rom-coms, expressive individualism, do what serves you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's the reality behind this popular sentiment of leave behind what no longer serves you or makes you happy. Look at Jesus for a second. Jesus staring into hell endures the agony of sin and death and wrath for people who could never serve him. Who could never make him happy. It's the call of the Christian life, not constructing a friendship group and a schedule and a career that serves you and loves you and makes you happy. The call of the Christian life is costly. Come, follow me. He meant it when he said it. We need to reckon with that cost. It is financial cost because we're committed to the work of God's kingdom. It's social cost because we need to sacrifice following every whim to spend time with those who need listened to and loved. Most of all, it's personal cost because we need to give up the behaviors and habits and delights that we could cling to that God in his wisdom has called sin. That's the cost of the cross. We don't get to stand before the holiness of God on the last day and say, but I thought it was free. And we stand before God and we give an account for our lives. The call of the cross is costly and Jesus says that you'd better count the cost if you intend to follow him. That doesn't sound like our kind of evangelical Western way of summing up the gospel. But Jesus doesn't make it sound like we have to earn it. Of course we don't. But we had better count the cost of what it means to follow him. Because here's where we need to sit up and sober up. Because in John 12 and everywhere across the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles have no concept whatsoever of a Christian that is not willing to deny herself in discipleship. Those are not two stages. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, and then in a few years, follow me. He has no sense that those two things are separate. It's a category error. This is where Bonhoeffer came into his own, because all around him, that is just what he saw. Christians who would use the name of Jesus, they believed but they were utterly unwilling to follow. The moment it cost them something, the truth came out. I don't really love Jesus. Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. Here's what he wrote about cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the call of Jesus 
at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. He keeps going. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, but it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Cheap grace, let me just be clear, is no grace at all. All right. Before I say what, what is to come, what Jesus is about to drop on the crowds, just hear me on this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're struggling, like you woke up this morning and you're just going, man, I, I want this, but I know my heart is still hard and I'm struggling and I'm wrestling and I'm trying, Lord, but I can't seem to do it. You're trying to follow, but you're stumbling on old patterns of sin and weakness. Just, I'm not talking to you in what is about to come. If you're anxious about whether you're doing enough, if you hear the words of Jesus about hating your own life and feel like, well, that's not me. I love Jesus, but now I'm scared. You need to hear this. God's grace is not lessened by your struggle. His love and his approval on you doesn't get dampened because you're human and you're wrestling. He is pleased with you. And he wants to gently just encourage you and empower you to live the kind of life we've just spoken about. That's my heart for you this morning. I hope you hear it. That what's to come is not a club to beat you with. Jesus wants to gently woo and encourage you into a godly life. That's those who are anxious, but if even in this moment you find yourself complacent, you hear Jesus' words and you're just numb. And you're not just complacent, but you're content to live the kind of life that acknowledges Jesus verbally. Maybe just intellectually, but you're not willing to follow him into discipleship. If there is no sense at all in which you've embraced the costly call of the cross, Jesus has a warning for you this morning. Now, we don't have much time to kind of dwell around in Jesus' warning about unbelief. It's not because we're shy about it. It's not because we're embarrassed of it. It's, it's because of this. If, if we've paid attention so far and we've understood what Jesus has said to us, then we shouldn't be slow <coughs> to understand. Because if cheap grace is no grace at all, then a life of flimsy and selfish faith just intellectually assents to Jesus and doesn't take one step to follow him is a life without Jesus. It's a life with no share in his death. He's clear on this. I'm not putting words in his mouth. If anyone would serve me, he must follow me. So if that's you, if you are either here this morning and you would own that, you're in complete unbelief. You're just searching. You don't know what you think. Or if you've embraced a counterfeit and cheap Christ, then on the last day, the cross will not be an object of salvation to you. 
it will become for you an object of judgment. That, that's the choice that Jesus lays out. And he lays it out in two ways. First, he lays out the urgency of belief. And second, the cost of unbelief. Just briefly, the, the urgency. Look at verse 34 in our passage. Then the crowd replied to him, heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? But Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. Will you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Here's what Jesus, in effect, says to his first hearers. I have a week left with you. The light of the world won't walk among you for much longer. Before the day comes that I die, think carefully about whether you want to walk in the light or the darkness. And his words are true to us today. The time is short. You might feel that life is long. The words of Jesus meet us as people that have no idea how many days are numbered for them. Today, right now, we have the chance to recognize Christ's words for what they are. We can repent and believe and bear a cross in discipleship. Now that's today. Tomorrow, only God knows. There's a reason that the Bible calls today the day of salvation, because there is no other day. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow is uncertain. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. The reality of judgment and death mean this. Your decision to choose today to step into the light is not something you can dwell on. It is urgent. There is an urgency to Jesus' message. Our days are numbered. The Bible says it is given to man to die once and then face judgment. There's an urgency to unbelief. But Jesus wants to just hone in a bit more and show us that there is a cost to unbelief. And it is a greater cost than the cost of discipleship. Look at verse 47. Here's Jesus. He says, If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Here's what he's saying, and it's hard to understand, but he's saying this. In his incarnation, in those brief three years of public ministry, Jesus held out salvation and healing and life to the world. And John makes it clear throughout his gospel, Jesus was not among us in those days with any intent to judge. He came into the world to, be, to save. 
And his words are the certain promise that we can be saved. But here's his warning. Just as the cross will either become an instrument of salvation or judgment, so will his words. Let me explain. If you've been straddling the line and taking your time, more importantly, if you've heard the words of Jesus, which you have if you're here, you've heard the words of Jesus and you have not responded in costly faith, then on the last day, the very words of Jesus that you have not believed in will rise up to sentence you to judgment. We're accountable to what we've heard. Friends, it is urgent and it is necessary this morning that you reckon with God. Revelation 19, written by the same John that is holding out Jesus to us in this gospel, paints a vivid image of the Son of God and his return to earth. Now just, he came into the world to save. Here's how he'll return. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth. There's his words. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He treads the winepress of the furious wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. That's the same Jesus that knelt in the dust with the woman at the well. It's the same Jesus that washes the disciples' feet and weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He is not just a lamb, he is a lion, and he is returning in glory with a sword in his mouth. And the words of Jesus that promise you life and salvation and joy if you will believe, when he returns, those words will be like a sword to judge those that haven't believed. This is urgent, and there is a cost to this. Have you heard the words of Jesus but refused to follow him into a life of costly faith? We beg you, he he warns you this morning that when he returns, he will return not to save, but to judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus. He's on his way. He will come again. And his eyes will be like a blazing fire. But the offer stands. Because today is the day of salvation. It is not too late. He has not returned with a sword in his mouth yet. Today, while you have breath, while you hear the words of Jesus, while he holds out to you the light of the world and pleads with you, come and find life. Come and drink freely from the fountain of life. Today is the day of salvation. Come and drink. Friends, choose the cross. 
Choose the cross. Choose the way of the cross. Choose Jesus. He is worth, I promise you, all the cost of following him. He is worth it. And faith is, in the end, far less costly than the path of disobedience and cheap grace. Whoever hates his life in this world, this is a promise, will keep it for eternal life. But here is still his word to you this morning. Because he is still in 2023, holding, 2024, holding out life and meek, gentle, this gentle offer of the love of God, the loving embrace of God. Come to all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let me finish with his words in verse 44 because we need to see that he's real and he means what he's saying and you can trust him. Here's a promise to you if you believe. Because the last thing God wants to do to his body is strike fear into us. If you are in Christ, peace and joy and life are yours. If you are not there is a warning, but here's the words of Jesus, a promise if you believe in an invitation to turn and receive life. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Here's the promise, here's the invitation. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. 